hello, and um, a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is Anne Johnston. Uh, I work for the Herald newspaper. Um, and it's my great pleasure and privilege to introduce a special guest on a special occasion. Enid Blyton's signature has become her hallmark. Uh, and it's amazing to think that uh, more than 100 years after her birth and nearly 40 years after her death, it remains an icon that's recognized by literally millions of people all over the world. Uh, I've, I've always been fascinated by those two little lines underneath the, uh, the D of, uh, of Enid. Um, they're a bit like uh, uh, an equal sign, aren't they? Um, which sort of begs the question, Enid Blyton equals what? Well, you know, where do you start? A hugely uh, industrious and prolific writer of hundreds of short stories and more than 700 books for children. Uh, ranging from two-year-olds to, to teenagers. And though I think it's fair to say that not all of that output is of an even quality, increasingly Enid Blyton is recognised as simply one of the best storytellers of the 20th century, both in terms of her power to involve the readers in the worlds that sprung from her uh, amazing imagination and in her ability to plot a story in such a way that the reader wants to turn the page to find out uh, what happens on uh, the next one. There, there's sometimes been controversy about Enid Blyton's work, but today, increasingly, uh, I find that there's, there's a more subtle and intelligent, I think, appreciation of her as an important element uh, in a balanced diet of reading uh, and in establishing reading habits particularly for children who've, uh, who've been quite slow to become confident readers. Um, most of all, of course, even when she wasn't very fashionable with librarians and teachers, children have always voted for Enid Blyton with their pocket money, with their book tokens, uh, and uh, with their library tickets. Uh, she has always remained very popular with them, and still is. Enid Blyton's books today continue to sell in excess of 8 million copies a year throughout the world in, I'm told, well, I was told 42 languages and now I'm told it's 43, so I don't know what the new one is. Today we, we welcome Enid Blyton's older daughter, Gillian Baverstock, um, to tell us a little bit about the person behind those books and what it was like growing up in the Blyton household and what it was like to be the very first person in the whole world to read a lot of what her mother wrote. Um, we'll also, she, I think Gillian's also going to try to convey um, exactly how her mother transferred all of those wonderful ideas from her imagination and into um, stories, uh, which may be something of an object lesson to teachers who think that you can't write an essay unless you've planned it out with a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> Today we're celebrating particularly the 60th anniversary of Mallory Towers. It is amazing to believe, uh, hard to believe, that uh, Daryl Rivers uh, packed her first trunk and headed off with some trepidation to the station to catch that marvellous train down to Cornwall in 1946. Um, and a real Daryl Rivers would uh, today be well into her 70s. 
Though uh, Daryl and her, her chums may not be quite so well known to a worldwide audience as Noddy or the Famous Five, they've retained a very solid following, not only amongst girls, ma mainly girls aged 9 to 11, but increasingly, I'm told, amongst uh, women of, shall we say, a certain age, um, <laughs> who have uh, returned to them. Um, hoping to rekindle some of the great enjoyment uh, that they experienced on first, uh, first acquaintance. So for the next hour, let's um, peep behind the curtains in Eden, Enid Blyton's own homes and pay a short trip to Mallory Towers with Gillian Baverstock. Good afternoon. It's lovely to be here. I was here nine years ago to celebrate Enid Blyton's centenary birthday. We had the famous five with us, with birthday cakes, with fun. We had Noddy and Big Ears and Mr. Plod driving up Princess Street in his little car. <laughs> we had many, many children coming to visit us all day long, and it was a very exciting day. So it's lovely to be back here once again, talking to you, whether you're from Edinburgh, or from anywhere else. And I thought I'd start with reading a little bit from Mallory Towers, just a tiny bit, introducing the very beginning of the story. It was, as you, we know, 1946 it was written. And I was, at the time, I think uh, 15. And I read it soon after my mother wrote it, and I'm now trying to find it. <laughs> oh, I've got it. I photocopied on a piece of paper out of the first Mallory Towers book. Here it is. Darrell was on the station in London, waiting to move away to her Cornwall in, on the Cornish Express. Darrell stared about her at the girls on the crowded platform. They all seemed to be Mallory girls, for she saw brown coats and hats with orange ribbons on them. They all seemed to know one another. They laughed and chattered at the top of their voices. Darrell felt suddenly shy. I shall never know all these girls, she thought as she stared round. Gracious, how big some of them are. They look quite grown up. I shall be terrified of them. And that was the beginning of Mallory Towers and Darrell's adventures. Darrell was called after my stepfather. My mother had married him a few months before she wrote that particular book. And his name was Darrell Waters, and he was a surgeon. And so, as a compliment to him, she called her heroine Darrell a quite unusual name for a girl, and I've never met one called Darrell since. <laughs> and Waters, being his surname, turned into Rivers. He, I think, wanted me to be a surgeon. And I think Darrell finally wished to become a doctor eventually, to placate him, since I grew up not wishing to be a surgeon <laughs> or a doctor. <laughs> well, I'm going back to when my mother was a little girl to start with. And when she was a little girl, her great friend and companion 
was her father, not her mother. Because in those far gone days, at the beginning of the last century, girls were supposed to grow up into good mothers and good housekeepers. They weren't meant to go wandering and going out for walks and doing exciting things like boys did. They had to stay at home in the kitchen. But Enid Blyton was not prepared to do that. And fortunately for her, her father, who adored her, was not prepared to let her stay in the kitchen. Instead, he took her out everywhere he went. When he went fishing, he took her out and she sat beside him on the river bank. And as he fished, she watched the birds and the butterflies and the creatures around her. And when he caught a fish, he would stop and he would ask her what she'd seen and she would tell him. And if she didn't know what it was, he would name it for her because he was a fine naturalist. They did many things together. He was a great reader, he loved poetry, and he taught her many poems. And they made up poems together, and they sang together, and they, didn't, they gardened together, just like I once gardened with my mother when I was a little girl. And more than anything, he rescued her from her mother's desire to take her into the kitchen and turn her into a cook. She was never a cook. She could just about manage tea and a boiled egg. And she said to me once, she said, well, I don't have to cook. I earn money through my writing and I can afford to pay somebody to cook for me. I always decided that I would do that. <laughs> well, she did many things with her father. One of the things that he allowed her to do was to read all his books. And he'd collected a big library at sixpence a book in those days. And he gave her permission to read anything she wanted to. And by the time she was 10, she read every book in his library. And they were mostly the classics. I found a lot of books in her bookshelf when she left, after she died, and some of them were his books. Books about the Norse gods, about the gods of Mount Olympus, stories she loved, and stories that I loved too when I was 10. And so she did things that um, he perhaps didn't expect her to do. She'd got hold of a dictionary and taught herself to read French and read his French books. And then he discovered her with a dictionary, reading his German books. And apparently they were not suitable for a 10 to 11 year old girl. <laughs> and at that point, he locked his library. As she said, it didn't matter. She'd already read everything except the German books. And so in her childhood, he was very kind, very helpful, and she adored him. But sadly, when she was 13, he left home because things were not good between him and Enid's mother. And I'm going to read you a little bit that we discovered. Well, I didn't discover it. Her biographer discovered that in this book, The Six Bad Boys, there were descriptions of what happened in mother's own life 
when she was 11, 12, 13. She told me that when she went to bed, she heard the sound of music drifting upstairs from where her father, a fine pianist, was playing Rachmaninoff or Chopin or Beethoven, but also percolating upstairs. There was anger, there was quarrels, there was a very unhappy household for the children to discover. And when her biographer read to her what I am going to read to you, he burst into tears and said, that's exactly what it was like when we were children and what we heard downstairs. The only difference in this that I'm going to read to you is that it's talking about two boys and one girl. That was the way mother wrote it. But of course, in her family, it was actually two boys and one girl. And Enid Blyton was the eldest of the children. The row that night was never forgotten. The three children were already in bed when it happened. But they could hear the raised voices downstairs, and they were frightened. Suppose mother threw something at dad. She did get so angry sometimes. The two girls got out of bed and huddled together at the top of the stairs, listening. They were too worried to think of putting on their dressing gowns, and they shivered in the winter cold. Tom soon joined them. He was shivering too, partly with cold, partly with fear. These dreadful rows. They all put their arms round one another for warmth. The voices were raised again. Their father was shouting. If you don't stop this nagging and bickering, I shall clear out. The children sat tense. Do you want a broken home? You're breaking it up by your behavior, cried their father. What do you mean? came their mother's voice. You just tell me what you mean by this. I'll tell you, said his father, their, his voice coming clearly up the stairs to the listening children. It's a home like ours, where parents don't pull together, where they quarrel in front of their children, and where everyone takes sides against somebody else. It says in the Bible that a house divided against itself cannot stand, it must fall. A broken household, a broken home, makes children go wrong. A broken household, it ruins them. The children shivered. This was dreadful. Who was right, their mother or their father? They were muddled. They didn't know. And then they heard a sound that struck despair into their hearts. Slam! The front door was banged. Their footsteps of their father marched down the front path into the night. The girls began to cry. Tom gave them a rough hug. He wanted to cry too, but he was a boy, so he stared fiercely down the stairs and wondered desperately what to do. There are more pages in that chapter about the final disappearance of Enid Blyton's father. Now, this book was written 
soon after the last war. It was written because many, many families had broken up at the end of the war because men had come home from the war often ill with what they'd gone through. Mothers had perhaps gone off the tracks and there were many broken homes and many broken marriages. And Sir Basil, Basil Henriquez, who was the chief juvenile magistrate of those days, felt it would help very much if a book could be written about broken homes and how they affected the children because children were deeply damaged by the sort of splitting up of families and the damage of family quarrels. And so mother was asked to write this book. It was probably not written in her normal way. She had to think about it. She had to plan it out. But when she got to the separate bits about the different children and how they were affected, there her imagination took over and she wrote in her normal way. And this book you can't get hold of. It's never been republished, or certainly not recently, because of course it's historic. It was about a time that is not the same as our time. The problems are still there, but not for the same reason. So that was the most awful part of mother's childhood, the departure of her father, whom she loved so much. She was told never to mention that he'd gone away. It was shameful in those days for a father to walk out on his family. It was shameful for her mother to admit that her husband had left her. And so mother pretended, a great pretense through many, many years of her life that her father had not left his family. But she did miss him. He was her friend, the person she talked to, the person who advised her. He still came to see her, but her mother would not let her into the house. She had to go out with him in the rain, in the snow, for a walk by the river, or to perhaps a cup of tea in Beckenham Village's tea shop. Maybe they went to the cinema. As she grew older, she took the train up to London and met him in London to see a theater. But it was not the same as having him living at home. She didn't stop playing the piano. She was very musical. And her father had great hopes of her being a musician like her aunt was, like he himself was. But she played not because she loved to play, but because she felt she would let him down if he did, she didn't. Because by this time, she had discovered that better than anything else, what she loved doing was writing stories. It started when she was a very little girl. And when she went to sleep and shut her eyes, all sorts of pictures came into her mind and they formed patterns and the she didn't think of these, they just fluttered into her mind like butterflies. And somehow her imagination worked on all the little paper patterns that came into her mind, turned them into stories. So every night when she got into bed, she was told stories in her mind. 
And as she grew older, she realized how much she loved English at school, writing stories. <coughs> she told stories to her little brothers before they went to bed. And when she was nearly 14, she won a competition for poetry. And the man who wrote, who published the, um, the children's encyclopedia and the children's magazine wrote to her saying, I am so pleased to award you the prize for writing this story. I think you have a real gift. You should use it. And this made Enid Blyton think, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to write stories. And so for the rest of her teenagehood, she wrote stories. She sends them off to publishers. They didn't get printed. She was only a girl, a teenager trying to write stories for adults. It didn't work, not yet. Not yet until a long time later, when she realized that she must write and told her father so on the telephone. And he laughed and said, well, if you want to be a teacher, go ahead and be a teacher. At least I know you won't be a writer. And she chuckled when she let the telephone go down. That was good, he didn't realize that being a teacher was part of her becoming a writer because it would give her the time to write, the time to think, and the time to try and develop herself. And so she became a teacher eventually. And then, although she'd had things published, a few things for adults, she realized as she began to teach in her own little school that she loved teaching more than anything and more than anything else, she loved writing stories and telling them for children. And that was the beginning of her working for children. And it went on until she started to write properly. She was commissioned to write stories for Teachers World, children's stories. And teachers read those to children on Friday afternoon before they went home. She was asked to start a little magazine called Sunny Stories. And she was soon writing stories for that. And she was writing stories for children's reading books, which she was asked to write. And finally, as she collected short stories, she began to publish annuals at the end of the year. And then I was born. And in 1935, I was four years old and she was beginning to teach me because she was a teacher. And she told me her stories and I read her stories a little bit later on and I realized that this was very exciting. And so as she began to teach me and I began to read and then I went to school, she began to write her first long books, the books that you will recognize. The Adventures of the Wishing Chair. That was when I was five years old she wrote that. Perfect for children learning to read. And then she wrote Cherry Tree Farm. She wrote uh, my great favorite in two years time, Secret Island, which was her very first adventure story. And she taught in there that if you build a house with willow branches, it will grow. And in the secret island, 
they do. They make a house of willow branches and it grows leaves all around them. And I didn't believe this. So I went off to where I knew a willow tree grew and I, I picked a whole lot of willow boughs and I planted them in the garden. And sure enough, they all grew. Well, my mother found them, of course, and she said, whatever have you been doing? So I told her. Well, she said, we can't have a complete forest of willow trees here, but let's find the strongest and the best, and let's leave it to grow. And so we did. And it grew and it grew until we had to leave Green Hedges because Enid Blyton had died. And it was there a great big willow tree, reminding me always when I went there of how much I had loved the secret island. And then, of course, another book, which you will all know, was the first one was The Enchanted Wood, but you will probably call the series The Faraway Tree more than anything else. And I'm going to tell you how she wrote her books, and I'm going to use the story of the famous five, which came a little bit later. Well, when she wrote a book, she would settle herself quietly in one of the rooms. She'd put her typewriter on her knee because she always typed her books. And she would sit and close her eyes. Now, all she knew at that time was that the publishers had asked her to write a book about 30,000 words long and a book about magic and fairies. And so she would close her eyes empty her mind completely, which she was very good at doing, and you will find very difficult if you try it, because I certainly do. And into her empty mind, the black space of her empty mind, she saw her characters. And there, and I've, I'm going to have to stop here, because I said I was going to use the famous five, and now I've said that her book was meant to be about magic, which it wasn't. It's meant to be an adventure, and it's meant to be set in, set somewhere, and to be 40,000 words long. And so she was there thinking about adventures. And into her mind, her characters walked. You have to have your characters, don't you? Otherwise, you couldn't have a story. And there she saw a tall boy walking in. And behind him was another boy, a little bit smaller, and a girl with blonde hair. And the smaller boy was pulling her hair and her face, she was about to start crying, and the tall boy turned round and made quite obvious that he had to stop doing that. She knew their names. She knew that was Julian, the tall boy. She knew the mischievous boy was Dick, and she knew the girl whose hair was being pulled was called Anne. Three of her characters. And then a boy walked from the other side of the room with a mulish look on his face, smacowling. Well, thought Enid Blyton, another boy. Well, he doesn't look very happy. And at that moment, Julian stepped forward and Enid Blyton heard him say, Hello, Georgina, how good to meet you again. Oh, she thought, it's not a boy, it's a girl. Oh, I wonder if that's why she's looking so cross. I wonder if she doesn't like being a girl. 
and she watched in fascination as George stood there scowling even more at them and Anne looking distinctly frightened and George and Julian very taken aback and Dick too and then to relieve the tension in ran a dog leaping up at George leaking up at the children and Edith Blyton thought a dog marvellous that'll add to the story she knew his name was Timmy well she'd got her characters she wasn't quite ended yet she wasn't ready to write the story because you have to have a place where stories happen and so she went on looking into her mind's eye as she called it and there was a beach with boats on it and blue sea the sun was shining and she saw the children come down to the beach and George pulling the boat into the water and the children leaping into the boat after her and they set off across the sea to an island where there was a ruin of a castle she thought well she found herself in the boat with them though they didn't know it and the boat rowed across the water the gulls crying above them and they came to a little inlet and George skillfully rowed the little boat into the inlet and she jumped out made the boat safe and they all leapt out and there was the hill leading up to the castle rabbits running across it and oh Timmy barked at the rabbits and George called him back Timmy wasn't allowed to chase rabbits and they all climbed the hill up to the top and at the top there was the castle a tower half ruined jackdaws nesting in it jack 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 they cried and down below there were seagulls still surrounding them and she saw a tumble-down tower and she saw what must have been a courtyard covered with brambles and with grass and there she knew was going to be the setting for her story she could feel it there was something there something an adventure was going to happen and that was enough for her she had all she needed to know to start five on a treasure island and the first words came into her mind and she began to type are we going to Cornwall for our holidays as usual mother asked Julian over the breakfast table no said their mother we've got to go away and we're going to have to leave you we think you might go down and stay with your cousin and that was the beginning now Enid Blyton knew exactly what she had to do and so for five days she typed out the story she didn't have to do anything she didn't have to think it happened in her mind and she said it's like having a DVD well she didn't say that but she would have said that <laughs> she said a television as she said a cinema screen but today children she would have said it was like having a DVD in my mind I saw everything that happened I heard everything that happened and I wrote down as fast as I could everything I saw and heard that I tasted that I smelt and I went on all day just pausing for meals and Edith Blyton was a very fast typist she could type 10 to 12,000 words a day 
because she didn't have to think of anything. She merely had to write down what she was seeing. And when I was going to school, I used to come and see her every morning before say goodbye, and I used to come in after, before tea every evening to say hello. What have you been doing today? And there she would be with her typewriter on her knee, paper for typing down there, and whatever she'd written that day. And I'd say to her, please, can I take those papers away with me? And she'd just nod her head. And I'd run up to my bed, bedroom, lie on my bed, and I'd gobble up those pages, reading what she'd written that day, the latest story. And then I'd come back down, and I said, that's great. Have you got a few more? And I'd pick the last few pages up. And then I'd notice that she was packing her things away. And I said to her, I've got to know what happens next. I can't leave it till tomorrow. And she would say to me, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going to happen next. I shan't know till I start typing tomorrow, when the story will run through my head again. I can't tell you anything. I don't know any more than you yourself know. And that was the way she wrote. And that was the way she could write as many stories as she did write. And every day she wrote something. Maybe it was poems, maybe it was what she called thinking work, like books of nature stories or books of poetry. Because poetry, she said, didn't come into her mind. Rhymes came into her mind. For example, Saucepan Man sings little songs. Uh, what did he say? Two dogs in a kennel, two pigs in a sty, two cats on a cushion, high tiddly high. Saucepan's little songs. Those were easy. They were rhymes. But if she was writing what she called real poetry, she had to think about it, like any of you would do if you were having to write poetry at school. So it was very interesting watching what she did and what she wrote. Now I've got to keep my eye on the time because otherwise I shall overrun as I always do. Now I've no idea whether you want to come in at the moment. <laughs> I was wondering whether I was ever going to get a word I'm sorry, I, I, I realised that I'd, I'd gone a long way through before allowing you to come back you again. You to be in full throttle, so I wasn't uh, wanting to hold you back. What you didn't mention about your mother's typing was that she, she was a two-finger typist, oh, wasn't I she? I mean, she, she, she typed 10,000 words a day, but all with two fingers. That's right. And I was a touch typist eventually. And I was a fast-touch typist, but she could type faster than I could with two fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wondered, I mean, you, you, you talked about her you know, producing a book in, in sometimes four or five days. Can you recall when she was in one of these sort of frenzies of production? And how did that affect your, your home life? Well, one of the things I think was that when she was blacked out, as it were, allowing the story to infiltrate her mind. That was a time she did not want any distraction at all. And she finally realized that she needed to tell us when that was going to happen. Because otherwise, we might well be jumping on the floor above her, because our nursery, a lovely room, was above her. And the light used to go like that. And that, of course, was very distracting. So if it was a fine day, we used to go out and play in the garden. 
But if it was a rainy day, we actually had to be very quiet. But the start of a story particularly. Once the story was running, and it just ran and ran, it wasn't so bad. We, life went back to normal. But some people say, how dreadful that she didn't like you making a noise or interrupting her when she was writing. But I know a number of writers, and they all say the same. We liked to be right away from the children when we were writing the stories. And I think that mother was probably very good not to be more specific than you must not make a noise on the first day that I'm starting a story. But then it only lasted for a week. Noddy took two days to write, Secret Seven, three days to write, uh, Famous Five, four days. Uh, then we've got what we call the Barney Mysteries, mystery with fatty in them, and also a little bit longer, the adventure books. Those would take her five to six days to write. But she said it was not like work. It wasn't hard work. It was just sheer pleasure because she laughed as she wrote jokes. She didn't, she didn't write jokes. It was something somewhere. It's what in, uh, no, in um, Tolkien calls it everything that he had ever thought about or done percolated down into a compost heap in his mind. And it was from the, the bubbling of the compost heap that his stories came. And it was much the same with Mother. Everything she'd ever seen, experienced, heard, or gone through had gone deep down into her imagination. And it was down there, waiting for her to draw on it in some story or another. It, and you'll find that there are quite a lot of writers who will say this too. And they're the writers who write fast and who find writing comparatively easy. Do you think the difficulties in her life made her a better writer? <laughs> well, the difficulties in her life, of course, were particularly in her childhood when her father left home. And it undoubtedly took a number of years for her to get over those, I think. It made her lonely. She lost her best friend, which I'd said. She had other friends, but she could never tell them what had happened. Her closest adult friend knew that there was something wrong, but she could never find out what it was. Enid was as secret as the tomb, in a sense. She would not let on what had happened. And that's not good for anybody, to have a part of their life that's completely hidden away, <coughs> that's there as a sort of poison inside you, that is waiting for you. And so that, I think, certainly had, was a problem. And the loneliness that she must have felt, I think, as a child, was also a problem. Although she did have good friends. But when you have friends that you can't talk to, it is a little bit difficult. So do you think she maybe took refuge in her imagination under these circumstances? I think she did find the, the times that she was writing very exciting. She did love writing. And she said that, quite on honestly, she would go on writing until she'd finished the story if she didn't have to eat or drink. It was sheer pleasure. It wasn't work for her. It was a joy, writing. And then, of course, later on in her life, 
her, hus her husband, my father, and she broke up. And that was obviously a very difficult time for her and a sad time for her until she met my stepfather and married again when life was then very much better altogether. But even so, she didn't talk about those times and they were hidden away deeply inside her. She's, she's so prolific that we think of her. My image of her is set as sitting with her typewriter um, producing all these books. What sort of a, a leisure life did, did she have? Were, were there hobbies that she enjoyed? Did she have a life outside her, her writing? Oh, she, had, she did all sorts of things. She loved going to the theatre and did that a great deal with her first husband. Her second husband was deaf, so he couldn't really go <laughs> to the theatre. But she loved the theatre. She loved music and she used to play for me. She, used to, she taught me all sorts of songs and carols when I was a little girl. And although she had not wanted to be uh, a, a musician, she did enjoy it. She also loved gardening just as she had as a little, uh, being a little girl, which was very useful during the war because we grew an awful lot of our own food. And I had to weed for an hour a day I had to garden for an hour a day. Always hard things that I didn't want to do. I had to pick fruit for an hour a day and when it was the fruit time. And one of the awful things for me was that one of her great hobbies was embroidery and sewing. And the things that I loathed were embroidery and sewing. <laughs> and I had to do an hour a day embroidery until she realised that this was really something that she might as well give up with. <laughs> and so and she had friends, she played bridge, she was a very good tennis player, a very fine swimmer. And when she married my stepfather, he decided she worked too hard and that she really ought to relax a little bit. And so he took her off and taught her to play golf, and, which she enjoyed very much. And he made her take two afternoons off every week and play golf unless she was writing one of her longer books. So she did have fun and she did have a lot of pleasure and of course television arrived uh, at the end of the 40s and so we all watched quite a bit of television. It was really quite exciting when it began and quite novel. And then of course she started to write for television and Noddy was one of the first uh, puppet series on ITV when it started. And she also came back to the theatre again because she was asked to write a play about Noddy. This is in the 50s. And she found this very difficult because her imagination refused to work. It did not want to write plays. And she couldn't do it. And she was getting more and more worried. And she was just about to ring up the producer and say, I'm terribly sorry. I can't do this. I can't see anything inside my imagination. It's not working. And suddenly, the next day, as she sat down for one more try, all of a sudden, Noddy in Toyland began. Into her imagination came all the characters dancing, singing, surrounded by the Noddy in Toyland houses, pictures, and this whole thing ran in her mind and she could again write it all down. The music even was there 
and she said the music she heard was very, very similar to the music that was eventually written to the, to the uh, songs that she wrote down by the uh, professional songwriters. And so, once again, she had the fun of the theatre. She used to go up there and talk to the children there. She used to wave to them. They used to come and talk to her. She used to watch the children acting in the play. And it gave her huge pleasure. And then she wrote a play about the famous five. She wrote a cinema story about the famous five, a film, so that all the children were able to go off to Saturday cinema and see the famous five. And all of this gave her a lot of pleasure and a lot of fun. And then, more than anything else, what gave her great pleasure was the letters the children wrote to her. And the children wrote her letters right from the beginning, from when she was writing sunny stories in the 1926. And that's how she knew more than anything what children wanted to have stories about because they told her in their letters. They told her whether they'd liked a book, whether they'd enjoy a st this story. They told her why they didn't like something. They told her why they did like something. And then as it went on, she used to get letters. Please, Miss Blyton, will you write another famous five? Please, Miss Blyton, could you write another story about Noddy or Amelia Jane? And Amelia Jane was my doll when I was three years old. And she used to make Amelia Jane act out all sorts of naughty stories. And when I go to schools, I do the same thing with my Amelia Jane doll, which I still have. And so from the children, she learned all about the stories that they wanted. And she wrote the stories for the children who wrote to her and asked for what they wanted. And this gave a whole new dimension to her life and to her work. And when sometimes children used to come to her house and knock on the door, and she would go out if she wasn't writing the beginning of a book, and she'd talk to them, and maybe she'd show them around the garden. And she always loved to see them. And I remember very clearly how they used to come, and how my friends at school used to love, and come and see, love to come and see her when they walked home with me or came to tea. So that really was her life, the children particularly. She, I think, dreaded the idea of ever losing her mental faculties. And sadly, she did eventually um, succumb to Alzheimer's, I think. How, how did she cope with that? And how, how did those around her cope with that? Her mother had had a disease called Alzheimer's when she was 50. And it's something that spreads, that can go through families. And it means that you forget things to begin with. You forget words. And one day she said to me, Gillian, she said, it's very strange. When I'm reading the paper in the morning, I can't remember what I've just read. And I was very astonished. And I, I didn't know what to say quite. And I, my, and I and my sister wrote to a man who was looking after her because she had heart trouble. And he said, oh, he thought that it, 
it might have been something to do with her blood not flowing very well through her, through her old arteries. But then when he saw her, he wrote back and said she was absolutely fine. She was her old sparkling self, whatever were I and my sister going on about. My stepfather didn't want to discuss it. He didn't want to know about it. He didn't want to acknowledge that something like this was happening. And so I suppose I noticed it at Christmas 1961. I went there with my husband and all my family and my mother who loved my elder daughter and who taught her rather as she'd once taught me, taking her on her knee and reading to her and teaching her things. Suddenly she turned against this little girl and she was cross with her and shouted at her and wouldn't speak to her. And this little two and a half year old burst into tears and I couldn't bear it. I didn't know what was happening. My husband didn't know what was happening and my poor daughter certainly didn't. And at the end of that Christmas, I said to my husband, we can't go down there. I can't have the children treated like this, whatever has happened to my mother. And it was at that moment that I realized that she must be really ill. But it was very difficult to do anything because my stepfather wouldn't acknowledge, as I say, anything was wrong. And I was far too conscious of my own children. I had four of them to want to take them down to that household where my mother, who so loved children, no longer knew how to talk to them. And was she still trying to write stories at this time? Yes. Her last stories were written in 1963. And in fact, there's a famous five story, which is almost a copy of another story she'd written for the Barney Mysteries a few years back. There was an Odyssey story, there was a Secret Seven story, which again was not one of her best. But finally, <coughs> in 1963, when she started to write, it was getting harder and harder. And she couldn't write in 64. It was beyond her. And finally, she had to go into her home. But she still knew us, though she didn't know her grandchildren anymore. She recognised Noddy, and she tried to write a little Noddy story, one of the last times I saw her. She didn't know that she was in a home. She said to me the last time I visited her, she said, that's a lovely picture on that wall. That's where I and your stepfather went on honeymoon. Well, they'd gone down to, um, down to Cornwall, and it wasn't a picture of Cornwall at all. And then somebody came in with cups of tea and cakes, and she said, thank you. And then she said to me, Doris makes such lovely cakes. And it wasn't Doris at all who was our housekeeper. It was the nurse in the nursing home. So in a sense, she didn't know what had happened to her, for which I was very grateful, because she had told me a number of years ago that she prayed that if at the end of her life she was ill that she would not be affected mentally but that she would be affected physically 
so that she could accept rheumatism, arthritis. But having seen her mother, she didn't, she prayed she would not, what happened to her mother would not happen to her. Time's pressing a bit. Would you like to read a little bit from um, last term at Mallory Towers and then maybe do a few questions before yes, we course. finish? And indeed, you may well want to know, have questions about the stories you want to ask. Now, we're celebrating Mallory Towers' 60th birthday this year. And so I read you a little bit at the beginning, and now here is the ending. Because when she wrote Sinclair's, it ended in Form 5. She didn't really know how to end that book because it was still wartime when she wrote it. And during the war, you had to join up the army or the... You had to uh, become a doctor or a nurse or go and join the land army. And so she didn't write the last chapter. Also, I don't think she really knew what children did when they left school in those days. <laughs> but by the time Mallory Towers was written, I had been to boarding school. And I had written long letters to my mother all about boarding school. And my mother knew very well what happened by this time. And now my sister was writing the letters. And so this is the end of Mallory Towers. And I recognize here from my own experience this it's the end of term. They've said goodbye to Mamselle, goodbye to many of their friends. They were waiting for their fathers and mothers to come and get them. Daryl and her best friend, Sally. Come down to the pool, Sally, said Daryl. So they went down the steep steps and stood beside the gleaming, restless pool, which was swept every now and again by an extra big wave coming over the rocks. Oh, we've had fun here said Darrell. Now let's go to the rose garden. They went there and looked at the masses of brilliant roses. Each was silently saying goodbye to the places she loved most. They went to all the common rooms, from the first to the sixth form, remembering the people they'd known, remembering what had happened in each. They peeped into the dining room, into the different form rooms. What fun they had had. What good friends they'd made. And we're going to, we're looking backwards today. Then we'll set our eyes forward, said Sally. College will be even better fun, Darrell. Everyone says so. And so they ended on a note of optimism and looking forward, exactly as I had when I left my boarding school and went up to St Andrews University, which I loved. Just like Daryl. Just like Daryl, <laughs> yes, indeed, yes. Why, why do you think uh, boarding school fiction um, has been enjoying a, a revival? Um, you're obviously... Um, everybody's been enjoying the Harry Potter books and, and there's maybe been a bit of a revival of interest on, on the back of that. Um, but I suspect that when they were written, a lot of people thought that this kind of literature would be quite ephemeral. I mean, after all, a lot of the values in uh, Mallory Towers um, 
reflected the place of women in society at that time. Miss Grayling uh, talks about producing good and sound women the world can lean on in her <laughs> opening, <laughs> opening speech. Um, there isn't any talk of women going to become you know, astrophysicists or surgeons so far, as I, so far as I know. And yet these books still have, have a great following. What do, you, what do you think it is about boarding school books that uh, um, give them such enduring appeal? I think it's the tremendous variety of characters. I think it's the fact that you can make up many different stories about different sorts of children. And you meet them, all these children, in the Mallory Towers book, in the St. Clair's book, just as you do, for example, in the Chalet School books. Or in uh, EastEnders or Coronation oh, Street, well, perhaps. It sounds exactly. a bit like the soap yes. opera syndrome. Well, it does rather. <laughs> But it is, we are interested in people. We are interested in how people react with each other. We are interested in how people behave and what makes them behave in certain ways. And this is part of being human. We are, after all, all human beings. We've all grown up. We've all had friends. We've all learned to be empathetic, or maybe we have. We, many of us have. We have understood emotionally our friends when we were children. We've, even more, we've understood emotionally our friends when we are adults and the people we work with and the people we don't like. We still do comprehend their reasoning and the way they work. And I think it's this that makes being in the middle of a school story fun and exciting. And I have to say that Mother did write very good sto uh, f uh, stories here full of different happenings, different ideas, and many of the ideas, though they may be old-fashioned, are still worth contemplating. And in actual fact, at one point in this last book, there is a little bit about the children all leaving, going off to become doctors and this, that, and uh, different things. So it, that had changed a little bit from the beginning, <laughs> right. uh, six years earlier. <laughs> and for heaven's sake, I mean, in Enid Blyton by this time, I was at university planning to do all sorts of things. My friends were planning to do all sorts of things. It was a different world mm. to what she do you had think, grown up in. Do you think there's in. an element of wish fulfillment in, in this, going back to reading these, uh, particularly when you're older, that there's a sort of longing for a kind of safe and s safer and more secure world that uh, no longer exists? It, there could be, but it's also a familiarity with something that was part of one's youth, part of being young. These books that we read, they mean something special, I think, to us because they were part of our being young. And I've met, interestingly, a lot, I've met a lot of people who've had very miserable lives, and they have all said to me, Finding your mother's books meant so much to me. It gave me hope that the future would not be like my present, that there were ways of leaving the awful things that I was suffering, and that there was another life beyond that. And I think that this is part of why some people read them and why a lot of them have actually helped people. Have we got time for a couple of questions? I don't know, can somebody... Mm? Right, okay. <laughs> well, 
I, I'm, I'm sorry that we're going to have to uh, bring this event to a close. Please, please, could everybody stay in their seats until we finish this event? Because it really is very difficult if we're trying to close it and people are trying to leave. So unless you've, you, know, you have a pressing need to go to the toilet or you have a train to catch, please, uh, please will, you, will you stay? Um, well, Elizabeth, uh, Enid, Enid Blyton has enthralled and entertained. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Successive generations, not just of readers, but also uh, of writers. One of the things um, that uh, has interested me interviewing many writers over the years is the number of writers who say uh, that um, they were crazy about Enid Blyton books when they were children. Uh, I, I chaired Darren Shan. I don't know whether any of the younger ones amongst you uh, are familiar with his work uh, a few days ago. I was absolutely amazed when a child from the audience said which authors did you read when, when you were young? And he said, oh, I loved the famous five books and the secret seven. He said, in fact, I like to think of myself as Enid Blyton with cutting edge. <laughs> <laughs> I felt fairly confident that Gillian wouldn't be describing her mother's work as Darren Chan without cutting edge. Um, and the other person uh, I particularly remember is Joanne Rowling. When I first interviewed her a few months before the first book came out, she, uh, we, we finished the interview and we were just chatting about books we'd enjoyed and we ended up spending about 10 or 15 minutes talking about The Magic Faraway Tree, which Gillian, you've told me, is the book that adults most frequently quote as their favourite, yes, looking so back. And I can't help wondering, we were talking about that sort of wellspring of the imagination, uh, whether reading that book didn't plant somewhere in Joanne Rowling's unconscious the idea for uh, a story about magic, things like the land of magic medicines. And I have to say, in the context of this afternoon in Mallory Towers, um, the Hogwarts Express has got to have its roots in the train to Mallory Towers. I'm absolutely sure of that. Um, Gillian uh, is very happy to um, sign uh, her mother's books, be they old, uh, dilapidated, dog-eared, much-loved uh, old copies or um, ones that you want to buy and uh, get her to sign this afternoon. And having watched her sign books, she, even, she signs herself as Gillian, daughter of Enid Blyton, and you even get those two little <laughs> parallel lines. So it's well worth, well worth doing that. Um, well, if... Enid Blyton had been alive today, she would have been 109, and of course she isn't, but I'd like to think that her spirit has been hovering over Charlotte Square for this uh, past hour, and in her daughter Gillian, we've certainly had uh, the next best thing. So although there have been no ham sandwiches or lashings of ginger beer, I think we've had a feast. So let's thank Gillian Babascott.